So without further ado, without that disclaimer, we're going to get into it. Um, would you please welcome my good friends, Pierce and Megan Davis. And we have couches because we want to be comfortable like you guys. So, well, today, uh, our kind of like our goal and our heart for today is to, um, to hear from Pierce and Megan, to hear about who they are, what they do, uh, and give you guys a snapshot of what uh, overseas work looks like. So, uh, jump right in. Tell us who you are. So first off, I want to say we're so excited to be here because um, this church is special, and especially Dave, because he was my first uh, youth pastor when I was in um, youth. So it's just exciting to be here and just uh, be a part of this church and this community. Um, so yeah, for those of you guys that don't know us, we're the Davis family. Um, I'm Megan, this is Pierce, and we have two little boys, Elliot and Summit, who are five and six now. And we serve as church planners in the Buddhist world and specifically in the Himalaya region. And uh, we've been there for the last, uh, in the Buddhist world, we've been serving for the last seven years now. Um, we were actually just in, uh, we're basing out of a country nearby until we can get our long-term visas into our country. Uh, so we just completed itineration fundraising at the beginning of this year, went to Nepal, but after nine weeks, we got kicked out because of visa issues and a COVID situation there. And so we had to come back here for the last couple months, but we are excited to announce we just got our visas yesterday and we'll be able to go back to the field in a few weeks. So, Wait, there's COVID over on that side of the world? They, they've heard of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. Uh, the last nine weeks, we went into, we landed in the country, and the day we landed, they issued their first nationwide mask mandate in the entire country. And within two weeks, they had shut down, and over the next several weeks, they closed everything, including grocery stores, where you weren't even allowed to leave your house. The police started carrying bamboo canes, where if you were out in the streets, they encouraged you uh, to go back in. So it was a little rough, but, but we made it. So. Hey, so that means we have it pretty good here. Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, cool. What, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, working overseas looks like. What is life in a day and, and what, uh, you know, what led you to pursue this you know, full time? So I think for both of us, we kind of have different calls to missions. Um, that's all the question. Or I get this asked this question all the time. It's like, Pierce, why are you a missionary? And it's kind of a, a challenging question because I don't have this great theological response that I could give to people. My first answer back to people is, why wouldn't I be a missionary? It's the only thing I've ever known. It's the only thing that's ever made sense in my entire life. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I actually grew up far from it. I grew up this poor little white trash kid in a trailer park in Dalton, Georgia. My family were drug addicts, they alcoholics. They, my mom and dad divorced when I was three. I didn't see my dad for years at a time. Even to this day, I've only seen my dad once in the last 15 years. He's never even met both of my kids. I never remember a time in my life where my dad said he loved me or gave me a hug. I never remember that type of relationship with my father. And my mom, on the other hand, she remarried five different times before I turned 15. There was physical abuse. My sister suffered sexual abuse. There was just drug addiction. There was uh, times we were put in foster care or, or had uh, child services called to our house. And I remember when I was 15 years old, I came home from a, a week away with some friends walk into the house and the house was empty. And for the next three weeks, I sat there as the phone got shut off, the water, the electricity, everything by myself. And finally, my sister had came and told me that my mom and stepdad at the time 
um, got arrested for drug possession. They posted bail, and she fled the state. And I didn't see her again for almost a year after that. But I always say that my mom did one thing right. There was this little church in our town that had a bus ministry. And every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night, that bus would come through my trailer park, and my mom would force me onto that bus so that she could have a free babysitter and go party. And it was that church that changed my life. It, it was the men and women of God in that church who became spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to me. And that's why I'm a missionary. It's Galatians 2.20 where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who gave himself for me. The very least that I could do in return is give my life back to Christ. And so I've known ever since I was 15, 16 years old, I wanted to travel the world and tell people about the same hope that I experienced through a local church. And so years later, I moved up here to Michigan, um, convinced her to do a one-year assignment with me. And then that one year turned into two years and three years. And now we've been in it for 12 years. And we've just seen God do some incredible things in our lives. And and we want to thank you for being a church that has supported us. You guys were one of the first churches that helped send us out over 12 years ago. And we are so thankful for the support and encouragement that this church has given us. And um, we started off in Latin America. And um, you were talking about the needs in Asia today. And we were there working in Latin America. Latin America has a strong national church. We were working with an organization called Feed the Hungry and feeding about eight to 10,000 children every single week. But one day I picked up this book that started talking about where missionaries are at around the world. And in the book, it gave this statistic. And I'm not normally a numbers guy. I usually could care less about numbers, right? I'm all about people and faces. That's, I'm, I'm the numbers. I love numbers. But in this book, it shared a stat for where are missionaries located at around the world. And it said for every 1 million Christians in a country, there's 189 missionaries working with them. But for every 1 million Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu, there's only four missionaries working amongst those people groups. And so that's when we started to pray and God started to do something in our hearts. And we ended up transitioning to the Buddhist world and we lived the first seven years in Thailand. And you know, people think when you hear Buddhism, oh, that's the religion of peace and happiness. They do all the yoga and their, you know, their exercise, whatever. But it's not, I, I'm here to tell you that Buddhism is one of the darkest religions that I've ever seen. Because if you look at the core beliefs of Buddhism, their fundamental belief is that life is all about suffering. Everything in this world is about suffering, whether that's evil and good. So if you love your wife too much, you are guilty of sin because that's an attachment to the world and everything in this world is suffering. So the goal of the Buddhist is to become as if you never were. When we talk about reincarnation and going to nirvana, nirvana is not heaven in the same way that you and I think of it. Nirvana is to literally be non-existent with everything in this world, is to have your name written out of all of existence. But that's where Christianity is different because we tell them that no, your name can be forever written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's why we go and that's why we plant churches in these difficult areas. And so there are millions of Buddhists who right now we are sitting in this church and we are worshiping the only God of this, matter, of this world that matters. But there are millions of Buddhists on the other side of the world who are finishing off their day by going into a temple and bowing down to an idol and a statue that they literally could have made with their own hands. And they live in subject to these spirits and these different deities that they believe control their lives. And they pay all these different alms and rituals in order to come back in the next life and just have a slightly better chance at something that they didn't get in this life. So it is a very dark religion that is filled with hopelessness, that is filled with oppression. 
But that's why we plant God's church there. And despite the darkness, we've seen God do some incredible things in the Buddhist world. And you're going to get the highlight reel over the last 10 years today. But that's not the reality. The reality is there are many days where we go home defeated because we didn't have a great win that day. But we've also seen the miraculous happen. I remember I was teaching at this Thai school, and all of our Thai schools are attached to a Buddhist monastery because it's a state religion, so it's still worship and practice on a daily basis. And I was there doing an English camp, and right behind me during the English camp is a big Buddha idol where they would come and worship and meditate to every day. And as I'm doing this English camp with about two or 300 students in the crowd that day, I decided I wanted to share my testimony at the end of it. And so I shared my testimony about how this man named Jesus had completely changed my life. And what I didn't know was there was this little girl, she was 12 years old, her name was May. She was sitting in the crowd that day, and afterwards she comes up to our team. We were with a a local Thai church called Amazing Grace Church that this team's got to work with many times. And she tells them that she wanted to receive Christ. So for the next several months, she started coming to the church, started getting discipled and just growing in her faith. Well, after a few months of becoming a Christian, she goes back to her school, and the teacher goes, okay, students, I want you to clear your desk because now's the time where we're gonna worship and meditate to Buddha. And so this 12-year-old girl, little May, she slips up her hand and she goes, teacher, I'm so sorry, but I can't worship Buddha anymore because I'm a Christian. And so the teacher was so upset that she wanted to embarrass May. She wanted to offend her. So she tells May, okay, May, I want you to come up and stand in front of the entire class and you tell them why you're too good to worship Buddha now. And so little May, she gets up in front of her class and she looks at her teacher and she goes, teacher, I'm so sorry, but... I can't worship Buddha anymore because Jesus Christ lives inside of me because I have been changed and I have experienced his goodness. And she started preaching the gospel to the point where the teacher sits back down at her desk, just begins to listen in amazement at all the things May is saying about how this man named Jesus had changed her life. And then May turns her attention to the class and she goes, okay, how many of you wanna receive Christ? You raise your hand right now because I'm gonna pray for you and you're gonna receive Christ. It's a little bad methodology, but it worked for her, right? And May said that about 12 of those students raised their hand that day to receive Christ. And what was really exciting is I'm sitting in church the following Sunday, and I see May open the door to the church, and about eight of those friends were right behind her, and they all started coming to the church and getting discipled. And so we've seen God do incredible things. I wish that was a daily basis because my newsletters would be amazing. (laughs) But that's like, that's the miraculous, right? Like that's the highlight reel of what we see God do. The reality is we have to live missionally within the context of the community day in and day out. And for every story like May, I have a thousand stories of rejection. But then those stories of like May, that's what keeps us going. That's what makes the church continue to plant and to evangelize and to spread the gospel. And so recently, over the last few years, God started transitioning our hearts to a different country in the Buddhist world. And this country is a little bit more difficult. This is a country that charges us $250 a day just for our tourist visa to be in the country. You have to have a government chaperone tour guide with you whenever you're in the country traveling. And in 2019, right before COVID, they only allow 38 foreigners to live in the country. And so they just got access to TV and internet for the first time in the last few years, and it's limited. So when you talk Elvis Presley, Star Wars, they have no idea what you're talking about, much less a man named Jesus Christ. And so when we were there, our family went there for one month. It cost us $25,000 to be in this country for one month. But we believe that the price is worth it because God's church must be planted no matter the financial cost. And so we went, and if you've met our kids, they are extremely crazy. They jump and bounce off of everything. They were getting in so much trouble. But every day before we met up with our government chaperone tour guide, we've held hands as a family of four, 
because we were there for two reasons. We wanted to see the biggest need in the country, and we wanted to see how we could get missionaries into the country with creative access visas, so whether it's through teaching or businesses or whatever. And so our organization paid for us to go there, and every day we held hands as a family of four, and it was a simple prayer. It was, God, we know that you are in control. We know that you love these people, and we are trusting you today. And I'm telling you that over those four weeks, we began to have meetings with principals of different schools and how to get teachers in the country. I met with the dean of the only university in the country. I met with the minister over the entire country who handles NGOs, non-government organizations, on how to put a nonprofit in the country. And one of the last meetings I had was with the minister over the Federal Department of Investments on how to put a business in the country. And I proposed a business plan to him and that when I said his eyes just kind of lit up and he slid all the application across the table and right before COVID, he was giving us every green light that we needed. And that's going to be able to let us put the first church planting team in this country, all with the goal to plant the first church in their local language. And so we've seen God do incredible things. And God has been so gracious. And we've seen, we've seen the miraculous happen. But this is a dark and this is a, a place that is filled with oppression. I remember I walked, I was uh, there with my tour guide and I walked into a temple and we walk into this temple and right in the center of the room is a 20 foot idol of a deity of a God that I'd never seen before. And so I look at Namgay and I go, Namgay, I've never seen this idol before, who is he? And Namgay, devout Buddhist, grew up in this country his whole life. He looks at me and he goes, I don't know. I've never seen him before either. But what I thought was interesting is I then watched Namgay walk up to the foot of the idol and he begins to circumvent it, prostrating himself every third step in worship. He begins to do these different alms and ring the bells and light the incense. And one of the last things he does is he comes up to the foot of the altar and he pulls out his wallet and he leaves an offering as he prays one final prayer. On the way out of the temple, I look at Namge and I go, Namge, if you have no idea who this idol is, then why do you pray to him? And he looks at me and I'll never forget his response. He goes, I don't know. It was the only thing that I was ever taught to do. But I go, but Namge, if you have no idea who this idol is, how do you even begin to know what to pray for? And he goes, well, I always pray for three things. I pray, one, for wealth and fame. Two, that my family and I would be healthy. And the third thing I pray for is that all the animals will come back as humans. But I go, Namge, why do you pray those three things specifically? And again, he goes, I don't know. It was the only thing I was ever taught to do. And it was in that moment that I knew the answer to the questions I was asking him. I know why he goes to that temple. I know why he bows to the idol. I know why he prays those three things. It's because there is not a church in his local language in his community. There is not a Jesus presence of a community of believers in his local language. And he has never heard the greatest story ever told. And that is a story of God who loved him so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on that cross so that Namge could have a new life filled with hope and purpose and spend eternity in the presence of God's glory. And that's why we go. That is why K-First has made the Buddhists and the unreached world the target of their focus. Is because for every Namge, there are millions and millions more. And their life is no less worthy than yours or mine. They deserve to hear about a man named Jesus who loved them and died for them. And that is why we plant the church in these contexts. Sorry, I'm going to ramble a little bit, Kyle. It's all good. <laughs> Got to get your preaching out somewhere. Um, well, tell us, you know, the, you shared the beautiful story of uh, May and how it was such a miraculous thing. And, uh, but you also said there's a flip side. And, and there's, you know, for every one of these beautiful stories of, of the God's spirit working in a life to, like, radically change them and, and impact their little world, the world that they in, uh, live in, their friends and family. But what, you know, what does life outside of those days look like? What is, you know, the work of being overseas the day in and the day out? Like what's... 
Give us a picture of what that looks like. Yeah, so um, living overseas is very different than being here in the States. Um, we can all get on a motorcycle, all four of us, and go to the grocery store and then come back with, like, bags of groceries. And so that's fun. The kids love it. They make little helmets for kids. So yeah, it's, it's so they do acceptable. have helmets. Maybe we'll get knee pads. I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, just different, like, food is different. Um, not having, like, your own language so I can go to the store and, like, need something and I can't find it. You have to improvise and just, yeah, I don't know. We live in a little um, apartment in the city. Um, we're right next to a zoo, so we get woken up by the monkeys every morning, which is, it's fun. We'll see. It's good for the first, like, few weeks. We'll see if we love it, like, two years later. But, yeah, I don't know. Just day-to-day -day life is just, uh, we love it, but it's different. It has its challenges, and it's exciting things, too. Yeah. And I think sometimes in missions, you can take two approaches, right? Like, you can safeguard your home, and you can keep, like, this is our family. This is, like, our sanctuary, so to speak. And you kind of keep outside world closed off, right? You treat missions and ministry like a nine to five. I think sometimes that's easy, and, and maybe sometimes for the sake of the kids, it's, it's needed. I think we were blessed, to, our kids were kind of born on the mission field, so this is kind of like the only life they've ever known. And for us, we want to live in community with our neighbors. I remember when we uh, first moved back to our, the country we're in now, um, we had some other missionaries that found us a house, and, and it was this big, beautiful house, like four bedroom, I think it was like 3,500 square feet. It was like a mansion, and we were only paying like $550, $600 a month. And we're like, oh, this is great. It was like this private gated community. And I remember we got off the plane, walk in, I start looking at the neighbors, and I'm like, man, they're all white, just like me, right? And like, not bad, right? Like, okay, this is great. And you have to go through like the security guards to get into your home and stuff. And a couple days later, one of the other missionaries, he's talking to me, and he goes, yeah, this is such a nice neighborhood. But he goes, no person that is from this country will ever come to your house. And I'm like, what? And he goes, oh yeah, your house is too nice. They would feel too embarrassed to come into your home. And when he said that, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. Like, I don't want that. Like, I want my neighbor to be the Buddhist or the Hindu lady, right? I want her up at 5 a.m. ringing her little bell, like walking around the neighborhood and stuff that you wanna yell at and say some words that you shouldn't say. Like, but that's what I want, right? <laughs> And so Megan and I like, okay, like we love this house, but we need to move. So two weeks after we got to the country, we ended up moving to a different house. We gave them like five months of rent up front. We lost a lot of money on it. But now we live right in the city. Our neighbor is the Buddha or the Hindu matriarch of our entire street. She's up at 5 a.m. ringing that bell every single morning. The little and she comes like in and like we live on the third floor of an apartment, so she's like going up and down the apartment. Oh yeah, she'll go up and down the stairs ringing that bell at 5 a.m. The sun's not even rose yet, right? <laughs> but we love it because now our neighbors are actually the people that we want that we came there to share about Jesus with, and we live in community and we live in relationship with them because to us that's what missions is it's not a nine to five it's not running from event to event but it is sharing in life with people it's sharing in the needs we had neighbors that were during the lockdown they didn't even have meat or protein for their kids and we were able to help out like we want to live in that type of environment and so we want to open up our homes and especially we want to see a jesus presence established in these communities and i think sometimes and I want to be careful because I love God's church. I was born and raised in God's church. I was saved by God's grace because of God's people. 
But I think sometimes as believers and as Christians, it's really easy to isolate ourselves within the four walls of the church. And we see this in Asia as well. Like, you know, this, this great Christian person or church started a restaurant. So now all of the other Christians, they only want to go eat at that restaurant. And that's amazing. Like you obviously want to support other believers, but we create these bubbles where we put our kids in Christian schools and we only do Christian events and we only do Christian camps. And those things are great. I know we want to protect the spiritual formation of our family and of our kids, but sometimes it's kind of like we count, we overreact because we have this great Christian bubble going, but we're no longer intentionally creating a Jesus presence in the lives of our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. And so I think it's a fine balance that we as believers, we have to start navigating a little bit differently. And I think one of the things when we look back over the last year and a half, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but since March of 2020, it's been a little crazy here in your country. <laughs> it's been a little crazy everywhere. But I've also think, I don't believe that COVID-19, I don't believe the elections and everything like that was ever meant to destroy God's church. If anything, it's a missiological and theological realignment that the church needed to take the presence of God outside of the four walls of the church. Because maybe the church building was closed down for a few months, but God's people were never shut down. God's people have never been shut down. And maybe the context is a little bit different, right? Maybe we can't meet in a building like this, but that doesn't mean that we can't take Jesus to our neighbors. And I think when we talk about missionaries and how we live overseas, all we try to do is emulate what the disciples did or what other Christians did in the New Testament. And we, when we come back here, all we wanna do is, is encourage the local church to kind of just have that little bit of a realignment to maybe start thinking of, the God, of God outside of these four walls and start thinking in, God's, in terms of a Jesus presence established in your workplace, a Jesus presence established in your school, a Jesus presence established in your neighborhood. Let's stop building fences that are eight feet tall so we never meet our neighbors. And let's open up the doors of our homes to actually live life with our neighbors. And can I ramble a little bit more? Okay, sorry. I'm going to go off here. You have a mic, so you can do I whatever do you want. I do have a mic. I want to be careful. I, I'm from a church on the east side, and I love my home church. And, but I've done this lots of times, so I don't think it's just limited to my local church. So we have a really famous uh, park over by our church. It's literally a few miles away. If I told you the name of Stony Creek Park and you lived on the east side, Everybody on the east side knows this park. We all have a pass to it. And I remember I was teaching a class uh, in my local church a few years ago, and I just asked this question, because I drove by this park, and you see everybody playing games and sports, but I asked them this question. I go, okay, what sports do you see play, playing at Stony Creek Park? And they're all like, oh, baseball, football, soccer, basketball. And I'm like, are you sure? That's all the sports you've ever seen. Yeah, 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 just baseball, football, soccer, basketball. And I'm, I'm like, are you sure there's nothing else, right? You've never seen any other sports. And they're like, no, no. And they just kept naming these four sports, right? And there was a national um, park ranger who, or a park ranger who works at that park. He was in my class that night. And I go, okay, Steve, you work at the park. What sports do you see play? And again, he goes, basketball, football, soccer, baseball, right? Like these four traditional sports. And I'm getting irritated at this point. And I'm like, you've literally never seen any other sport. They're like, no, no one can name a sport other than those four things. And I go, did you know that every Saturday morning and every Sunday morning, three to 400 Indians and Pakistanis show up to play cricket every single week? As soon as I said that, every single one of them goes, oh yeah, I see those guys all the time. The park rangers, like I talk to them every single week. And I'm like irritated at the class, but I've realized that I think we have pe what I call people blindness. I think we are so used to being in these groups that think and look and act just like us that it almost causes this blindness to people of other colors, people of other religions. And when we can't see the people around us, how are we ever gonna be intentional about reaching out to them? And I think we have to learn to open up our eyes 
to the people around us because Michigan is one of the most diverse states, I think, in the U.S. We have the largest Muslim population outside of the Middle East in Dearborn, Michigan. There are tons of people from other religions, but we have to start looking and thinking intentionally about reaching them. And I remember I asked that class, I go, when was the last time you had a meal with a person of a different skin color than you? The average answer I got was about once every eight years. Then I asked another question. I go, when was the last time you shared a meal with an unbeliever? That answer was a little bit worse that I kind of don't want to say. And I've done that question all across the U.S. when, I, when I'll, I'll teach and preach some classes. And I've realized that we have these blinders on us that we have to pray against. Because I think when we get stuck in these communities that look like us, how are we ever going to live missional lives? We have to be intentional. And with that, there's some problems. We, we put our kids in a Thai school when we were in Thailand. There's some good and bad to that because it was a Buddhist school. And you, but you've got to navigate. Every family has to navigate that. But we are the answer to every lost person in this community. We hold the answer to every bit of hurt and every bit of pain in this community. We have the answer because we have Jesus Christ inside of us. But they're not coming to us. We have to be intentional about going to them. And part of that is through opening up our homes and sharing a meal and sharing in communities with other people. And I'm not saying this to offend you. Before I came into missions, I was very much the same way because you just don't think like this. But I think we have to pray and we have to ask God to bring those people into our lives. But we also have to be intentional about opening up our eyes to seeing the people that are already in our lives. So going down that trail of like, you know, we're doing things to open ourselves up to the people that are around us um, and the things that maybe we just miss in the, in the everyday nine to five work, life, kids, sports, all that stuff. You know, what are some things that, as you guys are on the field that you guys are doing to, to work to open up your eyes to, to the people that you, you might be missing or to, to what are like some practical things you do to work against yeah. That, that tendency to just be in your own world and to, to miss out on people that are around you. Right. Yeah, um, I think, like, some, like, things that we did that worked really well, like, just find a hobby that you love. Like, we love drinking coffee. Like, I, I, that can be a hobby, right? Um, <laughs> so we, uh, For me, it's a full-time job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we would go to, like, coffee shops, and we would try to go to the same ones, like, over and over again and get to know the people. So we have really good lost friends in Thailand that we would like go and celebrate birthdays with our kids and we would like bring cake there after hours and like all celebrate and that just started just by going and getting coffee and just being intentional about conversations like asking them how their day was and sometimes they'll be like what was crappy and like you can just like just show God and like those kind of situations it just simply so that was one thing that worked for us with our family. Yeah I mean we ate at the same rice stand every single day the first six months we were in the country that we lived in because we wanted them to know us, we wanted to know them, and we wanted to show them. I always say, to be a really good missionary, you have to love Jesus, but the two practical things you can do is you have to speak the local language and learn to love the food. I didn't say you have to like the food, but you at least pretend like you like it. I should say it that way. You pretend like you love the food and it's the best food you've ever had. And those were the two biggest inroads that have gotten us into every country we've ever lived in because it shows that we're wanting to speak to the heart of the people. And if you learn the language, you learn their food, you're speaking to the heart of the people. And so we visited the same rice and noodle stands every single day. We developed hobbies. And by the time we left, like every birthday for our kids and our birthdays were spent with friends that we had met through these different hobbies. And what was really cool about that is we were able to, so we live in a um, context that are a little bit more persecuted, right? So especially in the country we're going to, 
um, it is heavily persecuted towards believers. They're not allowed to have a church in their local language. And I remember when I was there, I met this uh, pastor, and he was one of the first pastors under the government's new regime that was actually arrested and prosecuted for preaching the gospel in his country. Before this, they, you would literally just disappear, never to be heard from again. But I remember I was having coffee with him, and I was in his home, and he starts telling me that he was arrested, and he was caught with this Christian literature. And after about nine days of sitting in this prison cell, um, he asked the prison guard, he goes, is there any way that I could have my Bible back? And for some reason, the prison guard gave it to him, even though the Bible was illegal and he wasn't supposed to have it. The prison guard gave it to him. So he's sitting in this cell, and he said in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he needed to start studying the book of Job and the book of Acts. And so for the next two years, he sat in that prison cell, and he just began to study those two books over and over. And he actually pulls out the Bible, and I have photos of these books on my phone in his Bible, and he has all these notes written in them. What he didn't realize was that during that two years, he was going to go to trial 19 different times for preaching the gospel in his nation. And on all 19 times, he was acquitted. He was let go because he would argue the same arguments that Job used amongst his friends and the same arguments that Paul used before the Roman authorities. And now he's back in the country, and he's still preaching the gospel in an underground way. But because of this, because of these heavily persecuted contexts, it causes us to rethink what church looks like. Because if we did this in our context, every single one of you would be imprisoned or dead right now. So, I, and I don't say that like arrogantly, but it's the truth, right? But we still believe in God's church. So how do we do church? How do we rethink church in these contexts? And one of the things we did was we started opening up our home. And we started having our believers and our unbelievers and some of our team members would start coming to our house. And you guys got to participate in this uh, on your trips over. And basically we come together, we share a meal. Then we all sit around and we share what's one good thing that God's done in our lives this week. Because even in the most difficult week, we are grateful for God because he is always doing something good in our lives. So we would each share about that. Then we would open up a passage of Bible and we would just talk about it. I didn't come in with a three-point message and preach, but we would read a story because I want to know, okay, what are you learning from this story? Because your worldview is completely different from mine. You come from a, a religion that everything that Christianity teaches is almost a contradiction to your belief. So what are you learning about Jesus from this story? What is this story speaking to you? And we would do this with believers and unbelievers. And we would just sit around and we would just talk through the Bible. And then we would always close um, in prayer. And we would ask, is there any prayer requests that we can pray for you? And one of the last things we do uh, at every house, go, house home we have is we name one person that we can share this story with. Because we want everyone to be intentional about sharing their story of who Jesus is to them and how Jesus changed them with the people in their lives. And we started doing that, and we started a house church that ended up growing to about 20 people. We, we were able to split off another house group. You guys met this girl named Da, who was one of our first disciples, one of our first converts. And now she's leading all of these, or both of these, uh, these small group house churches on the university near her house. And so we just started to rethink what church looks like in our context because we can open up our homes and we can share about a man named Jesus, but we may not be able to meet in this sort of context. But I think that gave us an advantage because we really started to think more intentionally about how to reach our neighbors, about how to reach the coffee, the coffee stand vendor down the road or how to reach the people in our local areas. Um. So for, for us in our context, you know, a lot of us uh, have no desire at all to move our lives overseas to, to try to learn another language. You know, I was homeschooled and my mom wanted me to learn Spanish really bad. I think I learned how to say king and queen in Spanish and I was like, I don't know why I'm learning this. And, 
And so for us, it's like, man, like this, these stories are, are wonderful and, and encouraging and, you know, the, the, the challenge to live missionally and what you just said about mm-hmm. being intentional. Is, it's like, oh, cool, that's awesome. But like, how, like, what does that look like for us or for everyone here as we hear about uh, the work that you guys are doing and, and, and how you're being faithful to how the Holy Spirit's leading you to live out your faith uh, and, and engage with missions you know, what, what's something as a church, maybe for individuals or as, as a community that we could do uh, to participate in missions, whether that's with you guys or maybe uh, just in our context? Like, what's, what's something you would encourage uh, our church to, to do to engage more uh, in missions or living missionally? I think, I think I want to be careful. I'm very grateful for every bit of support this church has ever given us. But I think we need to we need to be a little bit thoughtful in our thinking because I think sometimes, you know, when you see pastors and missionaries up on the stage, it's easy to start thinking, well, I put some money in that bucket. I'm paying them to go do the job of evangelism. I'm just going to sit in this chair because that's their job. And I'm grateful for support. And I think in a lot of ways that's true. But I, do you know where the, the first time the word church is used in the Bible? It's not in the Old Testament. It's not even, it's not in Acts. It's actually used by Jesus himself in Matthew 16. And it says that I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And it says, then the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you unlock on earth is unlocked in heaven. That's the first time the word church is used in the Bible. And I love that word because he uses that Greek word ekklesia. And ekklesia was not a word that Jesus made up. If you look at the context of that word, the Romans and the Greeks had their own versions of an ecclesia. Because when you look at the ecclesia of Rome, it, it's, the definition translates as a group of people who were called out from society to rule and they were given the authority to make the decisions for the empire of Rome. So if you look at the ecclesia of Rome, they were the ones who elected the magistrates and the leaders. They were the ones who implemented the social systems of how and when you help the poor or the military strategies. They were literally the ones who were called out from society and they were given the authority and power to rule. And I love this verse because now Jesus is turning it around and he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, I'm calling you to be my ecclesia. And I'm giving you not the authority that comes from an earthly kingdom, not the authority that comes from man, but it is the authority that comes from the kingdom of God. And whatever we unlock on earth is unlocked in heaven. Whatever we lock on earth is locked in heaven. God has given his disciples the authority to rule here on this earth. I love the passport, the nation that issues my passport. But at the end of the day, my identity is not in this nation. My identity is in who I am as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. I love my country. I am so grateful for it. But first and foremost, I am a citizen of God's kingdom. And I have been given the authority and power that comes from him and him alone. And God gives us this authority. He gives us this power because he gives us a Holy Spirit-enabled responsibility. I want you to pray for missionaries. I want you to keep giving to kingdom builders. Otherwise, I couldn't sit on the stage today. Thank you for that. But more importantly, I want you to be the the called out one, the ecclesia that God is calling you to be today. I want you to be the, the person that is sharing the Jesus presence in your workplace and in your community. It's not just about one or the other. It's not just, well, we pray and we give so we don't have to do anything. Maybe you are not called to live overseas, but you have been given the authority to represent God right here in Kalamazoo, Portage, Michigan. God is calling each of us to be members of his kingdom. 
there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that. Like, there is no retirement. We don't get to work for 40, 50 years and then take a seat in the chair and we're done. That was not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel was not to receive forgiveness of sins and then take a seat in the chair. The goal of the gospel was to receive forgiveness of sins and then allow the glory of God to be on full display in and through us on a daily basis. Give me a better amen than that, church. Come on. We are the called out ones. We have been given the power and the authority that comes from Jesus himself. I have the keys to the kingdom of heaven because I have the spirit of the living God inside of me. I have the power of Jesus Christ because I have the son of God inside of me. He's given me the authority and not for my glory, not for my fame, not so that I can have a popular Instagram, but for his glory because he declares that his name will be glorified amongst the nations all around the world. That is who God is calling us to be. And a church that truly understands that, a church that truly operates in the giftings of the Holy Spirit, that's a church that's going to change the community around them. That's the church that people are going to want to be a part of. But this idea of coming to church and having this great hour and 15 minute experience and then running to the lunch buffet, that's not the gospel. That's a cheapened down version. That is a watered down version of how God wants to use us in this community. God is calling each of us to walk in the authority, to walk in the power. We have to be a church that operates in that because my identity is in him. And I do this because I want the millions and millions of people across Asia who are walking into a temple and bowing down to an idol that they literally could have made with their own hands, I want them to know Jesus because I experienced his grace in that local church over 30 years ago. The very least that I could do now is give my life back to him. And maybe your life isn't called to overseas. That's fine. But your life is called to represent Christ right here in this city because you have the answer to every need in this community. You have the answer to every broken heart, every bit of hurt in this community. You have the answer to every lost person that is out on those streets right now because you have Jesus Christ, because you are the called out ones. You are called out of, this, out of the, your society to represent God and you've been given the keys and the authority to his kingdom. And that's the church that God is calling us to be. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> you know, it, it definitely uh, was in the ballpark. <laughs> Emily, would you come and uh, help us close out? Um, so as we br- come to a close, um, I just want to give one last opportunity. Uh, you know, maybe like one very practical, what's, what's a great next step for us as a local church to, to participate in missions? You know, our, our heart, you know, as I said earlier today, uh, KFIRST, we want to make it simple for people to find and follow Jesus. And that's not just the staff here, that's for all of you. That If you call KFIRST your home, you are a part of a community that wants to make it simple for people to find and follow Jesus. That means you can participate in that endeavor wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however it looks. So maybe you give like one or two like practical like uh, next steps. So we, we've developed this thing called missional rhythms, right? And, and it basically it's like these ideas of things that we do throughout the week to be intentional. Like daily, we wanna, we wanna listen and worship and, and spend time in the presence of God. Daily, we wanna learn more about Jesus through reading our Bible. But we do a couple other things that we encourage our team to do. So we have a church planning team 
And these are like some practical things that they can do on a daily basis, the first or a weekly basis. The first thing we do is we want to find three people every single week that we can bless, whether that's financially or sending a word of encouragement or whatever. And we're intentional. That can be within the church, but we want at least one or two of those to be outside of the church as well. What's one practical way that we can bless someone every single week? And the second thing that we always do is we have a goal to eat with three people every single week that's not a part of our family. So how are you opening up your homes and breaking bread with other people? And again, we want it to be with people in the church, but we want it to be with one or two people outside of the church. I really think the most, I really believe that we could solve a lot of the political, racial, and all the divides that are in our country right now. I believe we could solve a lot of those issues if we would just open up our kitchen table and we would share a meal with someone who doesn't look like us or think like us or agree with us. Because then you learn the heart of the other person and you don't judge them from this stereotype that we may reflect on them because of our own bias. And I'm not, I'm not a political person. I don't care. Like, that's fine. I'm a Jesus person. And I think if you look at Jesus, he broke bread with everybody. Jesus opened up that table. And I really believe that all of us as believers should make it a goal, whether it's starting out it's once a month, to just share a meal with someone who doesn't look or think or agree with us on every single issue. Because this idea of sitting in this bubble with everybody who looks and thinks and acts like us, all we're going to do is further isolate ourselves from the world around us. But I want to close with um, just one last thing. Um, you know, missionaries, I, I was told when I got my missionary member card that you cannot leave a church without preaching on Matthew 8, or 28 and the Great Commission, where it says, Go, therefore, and make of all nations, baptizing them in the name Holy Spirit. We love that verse. Man, we plastered all over the backs of sanctuaries, like missionaries have it tattooed somewhere on their body. Like we have to, you know, we have to love that verse with all of our heart. We champion that verse. We put it on banners. That's like, there's a missionary. It's going to be Matthew 28 today. We get so excited, right? But here's the reality of that verse. No one ever says the last line of the verse. No one ever finishes the line of the Great Commission where it says, lo and behold, I will be with you always to the very end of your days. The call to go is always accompanied by the presence of God. The call to reach the people in your community is always going to be accompanied by the presence of God. The call to open up your living room, your dining room table and share a meal with someone else is going to be accompanied by the presence of God. Be the community that is committed to changing the Kalamazoo, Portage, greater area. Be the church that God is calling you to be. Love your neighbor and love them well. Don't sacrifice your theology. Don't sacrifice the gospel. But sacrifice your ideologies and your personal preferences a little bit for the sake of their lives so that they too can experience the same goodness and the same grace that you and I have been so blessed to receive all these years as we've been inside of God's church. He's given you the keys to the kingdom. He's given you the authority and the power. He gives us the spirit of tongues to enable us. He gives us the spirit of prophecy to speak life into the church. He gives us the spirit of wisdom to know when to stop talking. <laughs> he gives us the spirit of wisdom to know when to stop posting every thought we've had on social media. <laughs> he gives us the spirit of knowledge to learn when to listen to the heart of the other person because we have every bit of disagreements that we can have. 
there are so many things that can divide God's church, whether it's politics, theology, whatever. But we sacrifice those personal preferences because we have one commonality that is greater than all of our differences combined, and that is the man of Jesus Christ. A church that stands united, a church that walks in the authority, that's the church that's gonna see lives changed around them. Church, we've done enough fighting over the last year and a half. We've done enough fighting. Walk united, love your brothers and sisters, and set those missional rhythms in our lives as we be the group of people that are called out to represent Christ in our area.